like you to open your Bibles once again today to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We were there last week, and I want to continue on what I started last week, and the title was God's Plan for Being Where He Set You. A nice long title, but it's a message. God's plan. God's plan for being where He set you. There's a reason that I'm here. There's a reason that you're here if you're local, not a visitor. There's a reason. There's a purpose. We're here because we might have been somewhere else as I was, and it wasn't where the Lord set me. I became acutely aware of that. I didn't want to come back to this town because I'd lived here before, but when I did, I began to realize that this is where I belong. And where I belong is where I let the Lord plant me, and where I planted, I have attempted to the best of my ability most of the time to flourish. And God is good, and He has brought about the promises He said and brought, most of all, peace and joy in your life. You can't buy that. You have to experience that. Now, in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 12, For as the body is one and hath many members, and all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. And verse 14, For the body is not one member, but many. And verse 18, But now hath God set the members, every one of them, in the body as it hath pleased Him. And as you know, and I've already said the last time, the human body is composed of many parts. No one part has a mind of its own. It's not one body with many brains. It's one brain with many parts. And all of these parts, when they work in harmony with the commands of the mind, make the body function properly. You can scratch your nose because your right hand obeys that command. And it doesn't conflict itself it doesn't have any confusion within itself. It just functions the way it should, which is a picture of the way a body of believers are supposed to be. We've seldom ever seen that, but that doesn't mean it won't be because that's the way God intended for it to be. His body is a many-part body. And those parts, again, when they work the way God puts them and where God sets them, you have a body that functions well. The one absolute necessary need in each part is commitment. Nothing will really ever happen in your life spiritually where He sent you and where He set you unless there's a commitment to where He put you. It's just like what would ever happen in your life spiritually with the Lord if you weren't committed to the Lord? If you did not commit your way to the Lord, if you did not make a decision that I surrender myself, I yield myself, I'm committed to loyalty, I'm dedicated to the way of the Lord. Not everybody is, but when you are and you're yielded and you're submitted to the way of the Lord and the will of the Lord, things begin to happen in your life that otherwise would not happen. You begin to realize things. A growth begins. A different view of life and solutions come to you. Everything begins to change. Because, you see, I don't think God just makes you be the way He wants you to be. I think He gives you that unction to respond to Him and to follow His leading and to do His will. And as you do, He does what He does. 
We could do nothing without God. Absolutely nothing. As Jesus said, no man can receive anything except it comes from the Father, that is, spiritually. And when we are inspired by the Lord to see something His way, and then we're urged or quickened to do that something, and we're willing to do that, things happen. It's supposed to happen. This is the way it works. And when that happened, God will reward you and bless you for doing what He gave you the inspiration to do in the first place. It's a wonderful thing because God is good to us. But there must be commitment. Now, when there is a commitment, again, there will be a response. You will not sit and become a stagnant person. You won't get bored with God or the routine or the same old, same old. You won't get bored with that because there's nothing you've heard before that when hearing it again, God cannot show you something you never saw before. There's always a way that God can refresh you. Always. If your heart is right. Because you see, when God put us here, when God set us here, and maybe I speak for myself, I know that I belong here. I assume you do. But I know I do. And when He sets you here and there's a willingness on your part to yield your life and your time and your energies and your efforts to do His bidding, to minister to His people, whatever, however you want to call that, things will happen and good things happen. But there must be that kind of commitment from all of us. Now, last week we said this, all of us are here because we have a need. There's nobody in here that doesn't have spiritual needs, nobody. But those needs get ministered, most of all, where He puts you. For that's the place you frequent the most often. You can go to a meeting in the other side of the world and God can bless you. I'm not saying that. But where He puts us, where we are there weekly and continuously and faithfully and loyally in attendance and listening and praying for the meeting, we realize the more we grow, the more we have a need. The more we need to depend on God. Our self-sufficiency gives way to our need for Him. Whoever wrote the song, I need thee, oh, I need thee, every hour I need thee, had learned that. And that's why when you approach God like that, your needs get met because you want them met. Now, one of the great needs that He meets when He sets us somewhere, as we said last week, is that He sent us here to learn by hearing. To learn by hearing. The preacher's call is to learn you. <laughs> we are here to learn. Now, we could read a book and learn by ourselves. We could listen to a tape, and that's still by hearing. But there's a lot of ways people have convinced themselves they can learn, and they don't need to be in a body. That a church is an option in this life. We should be. It's the right thing to do, however. But we're here because we have a need, and the need is to learn by hearing what God has to say. If we didn't need to hear from anybody, there would be no reason for God to set in the church apostles and prophets and evangelists, pastors and teachers. There would be no need for a prophetic utterance or the gifts of the Spirit if we had no needs. There would be no reason for God to minister to us that way if we didn't have any needs. But because we are needy people, God sends us here. But the thing we realize we need the most is to learn, is to learn. God puts such a high premium on His Word. Remember in Deuteronomy 32 last week, we looked over there in verse 46 and 47, and God said about His Word, 
He said, this is your life. Just like Jesus said, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Or as he said in Proverbs 3 and verse 2 and Proverbs 4 and verse 20 through 22, he said, whoever finds these words will find life. For they are life unto your flesh. They are life to all those that find them. Then we must hear the words of life. Isaiah said, if they speak not according to this word, they have no light. And the proverb said, in thy light, we see light. I need light. I need for God to illumine my heart. I need for my eyes to be open. We call that the quickening. I need my eyes to be open, to see things the way God is showing things. I want to see what he sees. And he does that so often when we're sitting here and the word is being taught. See, it's not how good the speaker is. And you know this. It's not how eloquent or learned or deep the speaker is. That may be good and help a lot of ways. But it takes the anointing. It's all about the anointing. You could take the headiest person in the world the most accomplished preacher in the world. If there's no anointing on him, you'll sit here. You'll enjoy the stories. Your imagination will carry you into the places he's been. But that's not much more than that. But when it's anointed, like Paul, the Apostle Paul, we think, of boy, he must have been a marvelous person. He said, they said about him, his speech and his preaching were not much. They called it contemptible. But Paul said, my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration and power of the Spirit. Because God can take the words of somebody who is of less stature than you want and cause those words to affect your life. But it's the work of God. But you've got to hear the Word. Hearing the Word, things will happen. The most wonderful verse from the minister's side that I have found in Scripture, I want you to turn to it again. We were there last week. It's First Timothy Chapter 4 and verse 16. What a wonderful and marvelous verse of Scripture. For those who want to hear it, listen to this. Verse 16. Paul said, take heed. Actually, he told him to concentrate your ministry around the Word. Let me emphasize that for just a moment. Even the ministers that Paul sends, they're not there to make you feel better. It's not a message of comfort and happiness. It is a message of discipleship, of relating to the one who saved you. You weren't saved by a stranger. You were saved by somebody you're supposed to know, be drawn near to and realize who he is. And then you're supposed to impart that kind of knowledge, if you have it, to the people. I don't care what school you go to and how much you learn, how many courses you take or books you've written. You can't know God that way. You can only know God by a personal revelation of the Lord to you. If you can learn God by a study, then only the smart people would know God. And I can tell you from standing here, that's not true. The people that know their God are those who hunger and thirst after Him, whose eyes will be open to see Him as He is. And He shows that to the base and the despised and the foolish and so forth. But here He said in verse 16, He said, verse 14, Don't neglect the gift that is within you. Verse 15, Meditate on these things. 
And then in verse 16, take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. He said, continue in them, for in doing this you shall save yourself and for who else? And all them that hear thee. Do you realize what that says? To the minister, he said, take heed into your own life and yourself, who you are, how you are viewed and how you're seen, the way people see you, and make sure that what you say is what you live. Meditate on these things. Think about it. I mean, this is your life. It's centered right here. Your life is not your own. It belongs to Jesus. This is what he wants. You do this, and he said, For in doing this, you shall both not only save yourself, but for all those that hear you. And what about people who don't want to necessarily hear you? And I don't mean everybody in the country would have to. Somebody asked me once, said, Do you think this is the only place in the world that God's doing anything? And I said, Let me tell you something. (laughs) I don't know what God is doing in every place else in the world. I wish there was more going on here than there is, but no. At the last time I looked, this is not the only place in the world. There are places in this world, in this country, where people put us to shame. But that doesn't mean we don't try. We're here for a reason. I'm here for this reason. You're here because God brought you from wherever. This church doesn't have very many people from Shelbyville. All of you came from who knows where. But we're here for a reason. Not everybody that came here was sent here. You know that? If everybody that had been sent here was still here, we'd have a a whole lot of people, and I'd be in jail. Because some of them were pretty difficult. But they didn't. (laughs) Not everybody that came here was sent here. They thought they could escape here, and this will solve all the problems of wherever they came from. Oh, if I could just get there. And they came here and realized, well, well, she doesn't have a head covering on. Well, that Veneris got a pill in his pocket. Not that that's taught, or the head covering is, but the other one didn't. But the fact that people thought they'd come to paradise. And lo and behold, it was spelled Shelbyville, not paradise. And that the people here are pretty common. After all, this is Kentucky, you know. And hard to understand, but we try. God didn't send us here because we were perfect. God didn't send us here because we didn't need anything else done. He sent us here because we have great needs. And it'll only be met as you do your part. That's for both of us. But he said that God will save you and everybody who hears you if you will give yourself to the Word. What a marvelous promise. Secondly today, a second need that we have, a second reason that God's plan for us of being set here is that he sent us here to be changed. He sent us here to be changed, to be conformed to the image of Jesus. That's why we're here. Listen, to know is to grow. No, no, no grow. Without knowledge, there isn't growth. Church activity is not knowledge. It's church activity. There's nothing wrong with it. We did it last night. But it's important that we come to learn with the purpose so that we can out-debate every other person. No. We learn in order to realize. For learning is the eyes being opened to see what apparently we haven't seen before. And that's our need. 
our insufficiency, our weaknesses, our flaws, how selfish and self-centered we are about so much, how pitiful a parent we are, or how pitiful a member we are, or how difficult we are and, and troublesome we are. We get discovered. We hear the Word, and it's not what the preacher said. It's the way God caused us to hear it. And I see things, or we see things about ourselves. We don't want anybody to know it. But you see yourself. That's how you really are as God shows you because the Spirit of God just went, whoo, and your eyes got open and you saw yourself. Now, what you do about it is another story. You can quench the Spirit. You can draw back and refuse to do what God has shown you. Or you can humble yourself before the mighty hand of God, confess your sin, and grow. But we're here to be conformed to the image of Christ. Would you turn to Romans 8? Romans chapter 8 and verse 29. This is a good Calvinist scripture. If you don't know what I meant by Calvinist, that's all right. Verse 29. Moreover, whom he did foreknow, them he also called, and whom he called, them he justified, and whom he justified, he glorified. Does your Bible say that? So, now before we go to our verse, listen. God knew before there was people to know, before there were any visible bodies on this earth, God knew who His people were. Now, He'd have to know that in order to know all things. They don't have to exist to be known. They just have to be known, and then they exist, because that's God. He's omniscient. He knows everything. And in Ephesians 1, he says that from the foundation of the world, he had selected his people and his plan. He knew whom he did foreknow. Before there was a you, he knew you. And his plan, P-L-A-N, what we're talking about, his plan for you was to become the kind of person at the end is without spot, wrinkle, or any such thing. And those are the things that we personally see as God deals with us, those any such things. Spots and wrinkles, we make a lot out of that. That could be, you know, killing people and stealing. Well, it could be, and it might be something deeper than that. It could be the little hidden things in the closets of your life that prevent you from being the kind of wife, mother, preacher, member, worker, person that you should be. Little things that have tucked away from years ago when the devil was in. Or in the family tree that's climbed into your family and into your life. Things that hinder your personality that make you difficult. And he shows you that. Because when God knew you before, he didn't prevent you from getting corrupt in this world, from sinning. All that had a purpose too, because of whom much is forgiven, much is appreciated and loved. But knowing all of that... Verse 29, for whom he did foreknow, them he did also predestinate. He predetermined. He predestinated to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many believers. How are you conformed? What's the biblical way of conformity to the son? 
Well, you can never be conformed to the Son unless you see the Son. There has to be a revelation of the Son of God. It's more than a picture on the Sunday school wall. It's more than Jesus walking on the water coming out of a tomb or some spectacular biblical story. To know Him is not to just know about Him, but it's to meet Him. To meet Him is a spiritual way of saying that you come into a, a spiritual relationship with the Lord. He speaks to you. You've all been there at least once. You might not have known it, or you might have known it, but you've been there. You were stirred in your heart. You were bothered about something in your life. Something in you was not doing what it should do, and you knew it because God made you know it. And that was keeping you from realizing His life. What's His plan for you in Ephesians 4? We are all to grow up into Him in all things to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Grow up into Him. It's a growth. It takes time. You start down here full of yuck. And then He wants to take you to where you are pristine spiritually. Where He cleanses us from the filthiness of flesh and spirit. And He changes our lives and changes our ways. People might be bothered by it because they think you've become weird. But to God, you become the kind of person that He has determined you're going to be. And He puts you somewhere that that determination can be realized. Somewhere that you're going to be captured. Your attention will be there. You begin to think about what you're hearing. I need to be here. I need to listen to what God is saying to me. I see needs more and more in my life that I'm sure Jesus is not happy about, and I shouldn't be either. I can't keep making excuses about why I don't do this and why. I have got to yield to God. Sometimes we get bothered and disturbed, and we have to get alone and pray. It's just when God is disclosing Himself to you. Remember Jesus said this about this revelation of Jesus? He said, He that hath my words and keepeth them, he it is that loves me. He said, and he that loves me shall be loved of my father, and we will come unto him. In the verse 23, that was verse 21, verse 23 of John 14, it says, we will disclose ourselves to him. There will be a revelation of divinity, of Christ's likeness to you. That when he saved you, he put something inside of you that had never been there before. Himself. And that himself, Peter writes about, is the divine nature. Would you put your finger where you are right now and turn to Second Peter. This is worth going back to. Second Peter chapter 1. This divine nature on the inside of you. Look in verse 3. According as his divine nature hath given unto us all things that pertain to life. And what else? In other words, He is not only showing you who He is, but He is showing you what you can have different than what you've got. You're here. You could be here. You're putting up with this and learning to live with this. It could be like this. You're accepting your physical way of life. Well, it's the way it's going to be. It does not have to be like that because He did something at Calvary many years ago to change all of this. He's knocking on the door. Don't look through a keyhole and say, oh, it's Jesus. I'm not ready for this. Open the door. 
Because when he comes in, he makes demands for sure, but he wants to change your life. You get settled into this way when it's better this way. But you don't know it's the better way until you get in there, until he comes in. But notice, he said in verse 3, According to his divine nature hath given unto us all things that pertain to life and godliness. How? How do we realize it? That's how we realize it, through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. One of the reasons that we're here, is it not to learn? It's not a performance. It really isn't. It's not, oh, Brother Tom, oh, bro. No, it ain't about nothing like that. It ain't about that. Well, this is Kentucky. <laughs> it's not like that. We're in the same boat, all of us, looking at the same cross, the same Savior, same expectations, you, me, all of us. I have a different role in all of this than you do. And I have to give an account for what I say. You've got to give an account for what you hear. So it's even. But we're here praying that God will show me what I need to see. Just like a person prayed one time. I was in a prayer meeting. He said, Lord, help me to be committed to what you sent me here for. What a prayer. Look what he put inside of you. Verse 4, whereby are given to us exceeding great and precious promises that by these you might be a partaker of what? The divine nature. As God through knowledge shows you things about Jesus and you begin to embrace that and accept that and there's a willingness to do that, he begins to do things in your life. You can't hide it. You don't want to. Our light has to shine. It didn't shine before. It only flickered. And it flickers when you get born again. But as you begin to feed the flame with what causes it to burn, it begins to shine. You can't help but others see it. Because your life is changing. You made a decision. I gave my will to God to hear His Word and to walk in His light. To never grow weary of it, never have too much of it or enough of it. For there's always more. And to surrender as best I know how to the ways of God. This is conformity. Because the more I make the right decision to do what I am shown to do, the more I am brought into the reality of what I'm seeing. Like Paul was able to say, I know in whom I have believed. And I am convinced... I wasn't in Sunday school class, but now I am convinced that he not only is able, but that he will do what he said. Because of the word, Romans 12, 2, be not fashioned or conformed to this world, but be transformed, metamorphosis, changed into a different person. A change. Transformed How? By the renewing of your mind. That's not an occasional thing. This is an ongoing process. Just like growth is very often slow. And just like knowledge is like the dew and the rain from heaven that falls from heaven. 
and causes the earth to bud. Remember that in Isaiah, so shall my word be. So as the word is given, piece by piece, little by little, drop by drop, meeting by meeting, and it falls on good soil, and that good soil begins to receive the word. And you begin to put things together. And you bow your head and repent of all the things that God says. Either you get rid of it or I will judge it. And you begin to change. It's like God said, either you change or I'll change you. Because whom he loves, he chastises. And when he's done with you, he'll say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. But there's an image. I want Jesus, and I know that you do too, to step into my life and let me see who he is. To see him. Second Corinthians 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Go to the end of the chapter. Verse 18. But we all with open face, or another translation says with unveiled face. Things aren't hidden now. They're not cloudy. They're not murky. But we all with open face, beholding as in a mirror... The glory of the Lord. That's what's reflected and shown to us. It says, as we behold, we are changed. Now, what does it say if you're not beholding? Then there's no change taking place. Is that okay? That shouldn't be offensive. It's the truth. As we behold... Let me ask you a question for those of you that are parts of this body and not visitors. But if God set you here, should you not be in a beholden mode? Should you not then give yourself to beholding? Because what do you get if you behold? Change. Or change into what? Look at the end of verse 18. Or change into what? The same what? I can't get any help this morning. Or change into the same image, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Could we say then this, that a work of the Holy Spirit in a local assembly is to change the members He has set there? To change us how? So we start paying our bills? So that we start doing things right in our life? Well, all of that but more than anything else, so that many of these arid parts of our lives and our personalities begin to yield to His way. Instead of blowing your stack, I'm still working on a couple of things. Traffic. Traffic still has a, a needle left in it. People don't know how to drive anymore. I'm the only one that knows how to drive. I know, I know. I've driven thousands and thousands and thousands of miles in my life. And I have learned a lot of things about proper driving ways. And I don't think a lot of people who drive that much know that they're irritating me when they drive the way they do. <laughs> but I've, uh, I've had my moments just the last week or two at the traffic light. You can turn right on red after stop. If nobody is coming, now looking up there, there's not a soul as far as Simpsonville. <laughs> and somebody's up there like this. And I'm wanting to blow the horn and say, you can turn. Come on! Now, you wouldn't do that. And I think, 
I don't think Jesus would have done that. Can you imagine Jesus doing that? No. Well, then why would you do that? Mm. Mind your own business. We do get offended when people note that something's not right. But see, when Jesus shows us that, all we can do is say, i got a lot of work to do. Or being irritated when you don't want anybody to bother you. And then people are sent to bother you. They're destined to bother you. That's their purpose that day in life is to bother you. They're there for that reason. So that when you go, huh, God says, freeze. <laughs> and there you are in the middle of a godly moment. And it's like the Lord saying, Brother Tom, is that you? Change the picture, you know. See, that's what God sees. But you wouldn't have known this is a little problem in your life unless you had let God deal with you. And as He does, He can talk to you now. He can convict you now and bring a little bit of need for repentance into your life because He checkmates all your personality traits that are not the way you've been taught. Or you can do what far too many do today. Well, that's just your opinion. Well, you know, nobody's perfect. <laughs> What a cop-out. Nobody's perfect. Well, after all, after, come on. Those three things, nobody's perfect. Well, after all, oh, come on. That's the excuse that Christians make for dismissing the need for God in their life. Oh, come on. Nobody. Oh, come on. Now, do you, come on. And people feel embarrassed whenever people are intimidated like that. And, well, you know, maybe is nobody is perfect. Maybe I don't have to do that. Oh, come on. And yet to the Lord, he says, you know, you still got a problem. I'm going to judge it. What do you mean you're going to judge it? You'll see. You'll see. If you like judgment, you need deliverance. Because when God deals with you, it's not a fun time in your life. It's an agonizing time in your life. No chastening for the present seems to be joyous, but it's grievous. The lessons that can be learned are either or. Either listen to what he says and yield to him or, you know, listen and do that and then watch God deal with you. But then if he doesn't deal with you, if you just act ugly and, you, you know, you get by with it, he's not correcting you, guess what? You're not his. You don't belong to him. For whom he loves, he chastens and he corrects every son that he receives because the purpose and the design is to change you. Otherwise, God will have to judge us. It's either or. There's no middle area. You either will be right. Those in the last day, he said he heard them talking. There were the righteous, there were the unrighteous. There wasn't anybody in the middle. And those who were righteous spoke to one another after many, many years about the Lord. That was their favorite subject, the Lord. And they did this and they did that. But God wants us to know that He's going to change us. He said in Second Peter, that's through knowledge. How far are you from Colossians? If you're in Second Corinthians, you're not that far. Go to the right to the little book of Colossians 3 and verse 10. 
See, we are to change. He's talking about change in this chapter because we're not the way we used to be. We don't do what we used to be. We don't lie and cheat and act ugly because we have put on, verse 10, we have put on the new man. Or let me read you a translation while you look at that verse. And clothe yourself with that new self, which as it gains in knowledge is being constantly renewed in resemblance to him who made it. Are we being literally, if it is happening, are we literally being changed into the image of Christ? Like Him. Are we literally being, in the spiritual sense, made like unto Jesus? So that we're able to ask ourselves, would Jesus have done today what I just did? Would Jesus have thrown that hamburger wrapper, God forbid, would have thrown that cup or that wrapper out the window into the street. Would Jesus do that, you nasty thing? Would he do that? We live on a road where people throw trash out and Bonnie gets out there every now and then with her big bag walking up the road picking up cans and stuff. Well, it's our country where we live. Nothing wrong with cleaning up things. People shouldn't throw it out. I guess that's the way they were raised. I guess that's the way they were trained. But he shows us that we're not to do things that we used to do. We're being changed. Jesus wouldn't do that. Jesus wouldn't act that way. Would Jesus yell, kill the umpire? <laughs> Would he jump up and down during a ball game and holler and scream at the TV set or the ball game or the umpire or the referees? Or be mad at his friend all week because he's for one team, you're for the league. Is that what Jesus would do? It's a bad influence, isn't it? We have to constantly check ourselves. Am I living right? Am I doing right? Would Jesus do this? Would Jesus say that? Would Jesus act this way? Would Jesus go there? Am I being changed into the image of Christ? Is this change apparent to everybody? I wouldn't ask you if you were saved. I'd ask your friends, your children. I'd ask your husband, your wife, or your friends. Is she or he saved? They know. We all want to be, but somebody knows. See, are we really being like what we are taught to be like, or are we just learning to hear about it and go our own way and have our own reasons why we're not? Is it a life, or is it just a church? Are we just here because, well, you know, decent people, good people go to church, but it's not such a big deal. Everybody has a different view that, to me, this is my life. For me, this is my life. This is what I do. I'd rather do what I'm doing than anything else, and yet it's the most frustrating thing I've ever done. Some of the worst days are the hour or two after it's over when you're finally alone. It's just a thing you fight. And yet there's more joy and peace in this than anything I can think of. This is it. This is what the gears are made for. If I were sitting there with you, I would say my life is built around what I hear as I come and what I realize and what I'm doing. This is my life. My life is not my job. My life is not some education or some business or money or 
school or security somewhere. My life is Jesus. I can gain this whole stinking world. There's a preacher said one time, I could have a big church if I'd quit preaching about faith and anti, anti, anti. I think I said, what would you have? A lot of people that you had to keep feeding that stuff, people that are not living right, and the first time you tell them, you begin to explain what you meant, they all leave you. Because I found that in Christianity, the one thing that separates most of us from others is definitions. People don't mind you talking about Jesus, loving God, we're here to love God. It's when you teach what that means that they get offended. Oh, we ought to have faith in God. And when you teach on faith, they usually all of them are bothered. Some of them leave. Because you begin to define things. I told a child of mine once, I said, the problem in your life is that you have no definitions. You can't define sin. Unless you define sin as cutting down a tree where an owl lived. Sin, that personal offense to God by the little things you do, the words you speak, the attitudes you have, the activity you're involved in, the looseness in your life and what you watch and say and hear, you're offensive to God because all of that is sin. And sin is why God turns away from you. And sin is what God uses to bring repentance. But it's the definitions. We can't change into something we don't know what it is. It has to be defined. You have to teach me thy way, O Lord. You have to make clear what God is saying. And people don't like it. I've done this too many years. And I have watched too many people be a friend. And then all of a sudden they, are you saying? I did. And they're gone. It's like there's something in a person that has a wall up against God. I want God in my own way. I have envisioned God this way and this is how I see him. And now you're telling me he's not that way, but there's more. No. I'm telling you, as I look back over the last 43 years of my life, that's a long time. I was born again last century. All right. Looking back over 43 years, people don't like definitions. Are you saying, that's what they say, are you saying, do you mean by what you said? And you say, well, that's what it says. Well, I don't see it that way. Well, I'm going to give an account for what I say. You're going to give an account for what you say. But it's defining the Christian life. I make a good sermon title. The definition of the Christian life. Nobody would want to hear that one either. And people say, well, that's hard preaching. No, it's not. It's the truth. If you don't see precisely what it is that God wants to see, how can you be like that? If you don't know what He wants specifically, you cannot be that way generally. This is not a general walk. Well, I, you know, to me, he is, I don't know. It's not like that. It's like, this is the way, walk ye in it. You say, well, Brother Hamilton, that's too hard. No, it's not hard. Quit saying that. It's not harsh. It's not harsh, and it's not hard. It's the truth. 
Now, the attitude, the way it's said sometimes, could be offensive. I agree with that. I've had my snotty moments. But the Word is true. The Word is absolutely true, and it will never change. You see, this is the work. What we're doing is the work that has to continually take place until something was said in Galatians 4. Galatians 4. Look at the 19th verse. My little children of whom I travail in birth again until. Until what? Until Christ be formed in you. What does that mean? Is that Romans 8.29? Is that 2 Corinthians 3.18, the image? Is that Ephesians 4, 13, 14, 15? Is it the coming forth of something that has never come forth before? How can you know, you that are sitting here now or listening wherever you are, how can you tell if Christ is being formed in you? How do you know? See, that's where you need a definition. You could generally say, oh, until Christ is formed, let Christ be formed in you. Amen. Let God be formed in you. Amen. And then go on. Because that doesn't mean anything. It's a sentence. It's words put together. It means nothing. There's no vision. If words don't have a meaning, they do nothing. When I was in Australia once, I asked the people there. I said, how many of you have ever eaten a nightcrawler? And they did what you're doing. Now, some of you ought to be going, ugh. And I said, nightcrawler. And, and you can see the looks on their faces. It didn't mean anything. Night is, you know, it's dark. Crawler, uh, babies are crawling around at night. You don't eat crawling around at night. Well, how do you eat that? It's like born again. How do you get born again when you're, you know, I'm old as I am. I can't go back to my mother's room. It doesn't mean anything. But a nightcrawler is a... A fishing worm on steroids. It's a big, long bass catcher. And when I said that, they all went, oh, yeah, because now they have a definition, and with the definition is a picture. There's an image now. Without an image, a word doesn't mean anything. I couldn't give you directions if you didn't have words. Go to this. Two blocks down, there's a right, there's a white house with a fire hydrant. You've got to know what all that is. If somebody couldn't speak English and I was giving them perfect directions, they'd run into a wall or get run over by a train. They don't understand. Or if I was in a foreign country and they were giving me directions and everybody, and I wouldn't know what they were saying. But how much of Christianity seems to be like that? We're here, we're hearing a lot, but it's not registering. That's why I keep going back more and more. Have you been born again? Has there ever been a time in your life when no questions asked, you were transformed, you were changed? You were born again into a new person spiritually. And since that day, it has never been the same. You see, if that's never happened, you're born in this church, you can act like that. You can imitate Christians. You can come to church and, and please your wife or your husband by doing this. We can learn it. But it'll never work unless you've been changed on the inside. A divine nature has to come into your life. Christ in you. 
God at work in you. It has to be like that. It starts with the new birth. If you've never been born again, you're here, but it's like you're knocking on the door. There's nobody home. You're here. Somehow you know what you're hearing is right. You can't put it together. It doesn't compute like it's supposed to. See, that activity of the Spirit is not there in your life. You're a good person. I'm not saying that. You pay your bills. Good mother, father, all of that. But spiritually, you're a stagnant soul because you're going nowhere, except you've got a good heart about you, and I'm sure you want to. We love you. But it's a lack of Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1. How many times have we read this? How many times have we read in Ephesians 1 and verse 17 that God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, He may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. That word keeps popping up. How does the knowledge, true knowledge, life-changing knowledge come? Through what agency? The Spirit. You see it? Remember Colossians 3.18, we're changed into the same image even as by the Spirit because the Spirit of God directs you to the Word. Jesus said when the Spirit comes, He will guide you into all the truth. Jesus said you'll know the truth. That's something you know. But it has to be revealed to you. Give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation. Like He said right here. A spirit. That's His work. Because the next verse says, the eyes of your understanding. That's your heart would be enlightened or illumined. You can see things you've never seen before. You see it in a way that is supposed to be seen. Everything is changed. You go, oh, or you go, oh. And a lot of people never change because look what it would cost me. I couldn't keep my job at wherever they work. If I had to live this way, I'd, I couldn't be the mayor, the whatever. God's going to change my life. Well, how could that be good if I'm going to lose? Aren't you glad you're being rescued from something that you won't be judged for? But he said, Spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, that the eyes of your heart be illumined so that you may know. The word know is the Greek word oida, and it means to see. Thomas said, except I see these prints in his hands and the hole in his side, I won't believe it. The word see in John 21 is the same word as know. It's a knowledge that is as real as if you saw it. I mean, it's like I know in whom I have believed. Or Philippians 3.21, that I might know him. I mean, know him like he is a constant companion. I'm always listening to him. He guides me and leads me through still waters and green pastures. And he anoints me and provides for me. And, and he secures me. And if I fall, he lifts me up. And he gives me words to say. And he humbles me. And his two friends are my two friends. Goodness and mercy, they follow me all the days of my life. I'm talking about the kind of life that we're being changed into. The image that God is offering us is a change of your life. All that fretting and meanness and ugliness goes. And don't dread, oh, I had to give up my video games with all these demons. Don't fret over that. 
God is sparing you from something that would judge you later on. Because most of this stuff that's advertised in the video world today and all is nothing but demons. They're examples of evil spirits. There's a purpose for that too, but I'm not going into that. A whole generation is being corrupted. And when Jesus comes, they're going to fight him too. Because he's just like on them video games. Here he comes with all of his saints. It's a corruption of a whole generation. There's a few exceptions, but only a few. And a whole generation is falling prey to all of this trash that's in the world today. Now, let me begin closing by saying this. This changing work is twofold. One, it's a refining. I'm sure all of you know that in the Malachi 3, Jesus will sit as a finer or a refiner and a smelter, one who melts and cleanses the dross off of the metal of silver. And it says in Malachi that he will refine the sons of Levi. The Levitical tribe was the priestly tribe. Peter describes us as a kingdom of priests. Special to God were the Levites. No inheritance except God. Well, that's who we are spiritually. He gives us himself. He said that he will refine these sons of Levi, and he will try them, and he will purge them, so that they may offer unto him an offering in righteousness. So this one that, whose image we're being changed into and we aspire to is the work of the refiner. Concerning refining, he said in Proverbs chapter 25, he said that he will take away the dross from the silver and there comes forth a vessel for the smith, for the one who will form something out of it. You've got to get rid of the dross. You know what the dross is? We've been talking about it for 20 minutes. The dross is the stuff in your life that's revealed to you by the Lord that you must deal with. God will not make it go away. That's your business. You have a will. You have time. This is dross. This is the stuff that interferes with God. This is what keeps you from being that person that God says, well done. It's the little stinky stuff in your life. And that's what the refiner's fire does. He brings it to the surface and he heats it up to cleanse it. Maybe it's the afflictions. How many of you know that when we go through trials and troubles and afflictions and our body is not saying what God said, your body hurts all over, has pain, and God says he delivered you from all of that, and yet, and realize that this is a test. What do you believe? What do you believe? What do you believe? And you're going through this or you're going through some other kind of thing. Maybe it's some sort of a... Paul called it our light and momentary afflictions. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 15 said, For which cause we faint not, for though our outward man perish, yet our inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding weight of glory. Of glory. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever heard in Scripture that there is a glory which is to be revealed in us? You know who it is? Glory can only be attributed to one thing. That's God. His work is glorious. That's another subject. Glory. What a topic. 
the glorious work of God, the glorious Son of God, the result of His glory in you, which is Christ. And he says these light afflictions, one translation says our light momentary afflictions worketh for us a far more exceeding weight of glory. Something is going to come out of all these little skirmishes that we have in life that's going to teach us to stand steadfast and depend on God. One day you won't be able to depend on anybody else. You do it now while you have options, but you lay the options aside, I'm going to trust the Lord. We use that for our next point. Isaiah 48, he said, Behold, I have refined thee, but not as silver. He said, I have chosen thee in the furnace of affliction. Would God do that? Well, let me ask you all another question. Would the furnace of affliction, that uncomfortable time and yuck in our life, when we have all the questions, would the furnace of of affliction be a proper proving ground for a saint? Well, if it is, if it is, Selah, think about it. That's what he said in Isaiah 48, 10, Behold, I have refined thee, he said, but not with silver. I have chosen thee in the furnace of affliction. Wow. Or in the furnace of affliction, we turned around and ran. Or we just stood there and did it. Hell fast. And God made a sovereign choice. The Bible speaks in Romans about the glory which shall be revealed in us in Romans chapter 3. But it's through sufferings. The difficulties that we go through. This image that I'm talking about, this change that God is going to bring in us, is going to be brought about in various ways. The teaching of the Word is to prepare you what to trust in when the problem comes. Faith comes by hearing. That's our next point, but faith comes by hearing by the Word. That's what you use. It's a weapon. It's what will deliver you. It's what God honors and backs. Is your faith, not your knowledge. Faith comes by hearing. If all you do is hear, all you've got is knowledge. Knowledge is nothing unless you trust it. And when you trust it, it becomes faith. It's what you're counting on. It's what you're relying on. It's what you're depending on. But it comes by hearing. You don't know what to believe unless you know what God said you can believe. You can't just manufacture faith. It comes only one way from one source. It comes from God as He gives it, as He gives it by the hearing of His Word. He is the author of your faith. We won't get done this morning and, and we won't get done next week. I'm not trying to wear you out. I think it's important for us to know in the bigger picture how deep and intricate it is for what God is doing somewhere with His people. I think it is vital. If I didn't, I would just hash this over, use some good religious quotes and move on and let you go and it'd be a good day and have a good time. Nothing would ever happen in your life, but hey, I did my job. Listen to what Zechariah said about this. He said, Zechariah 13, 9, he said, I will bring the third part through the fire. It's just the third part. And he said, and I will refine them as silver is refined. 
And I will try them as gold is tried. That's a process. It takes a little while to heat up the furnace to put the ore or whatever you're putting in there that's gold in it. And not everything in that pot's gold. Just like in a house, there's gold and silver, but there's wood, hay, and stubble. Well, the pot with the picture of the gold and the ore is to bring the scum to the surface. And when it boils up and it comes there, you wipe that off and then you let it cool and you see if it's clean. If it's not, you heat it up again. These are called light momentary afflictions and the whole purpose of them is to refine you so that when God looks at you, He sees Himself. Well, the image projected back to God is like what you, is projected to you in a mirror. You see Him. He sees you, Christ in you. That's what He's looking for. And all these things that go through these, as he called light momentary reflect, it's for our sakes. We hate it. We dread it because somebody forgot in a lot of places. Somebody forgot to teach us that this is part of the Christian life. And they think they're under a curse because they're going through a battle of some sort. You're not under a curse. You could be, but I doubt that you are. You need to draw your sword. You've been taught it. You got one. You've got a shield. It really does work. It says all the fiery darts of the wicked. There is nothing he can do that this thing doesn't stop. That hasn't ceased. This message is as current right now as it was 40 years ago. Preacher friend of mine said, well, God has moved on. Never from this. Talked about in the wilderness, you know, God moved. It's a good thing God moved on as they went in a circle for 40 years. They had to move around. They had to, couldn't stay in the same place all the time, obviously. But, oh, praise God. Second thing, not only is he refining you, but he's purging you. Purging or pruning because, and this is a whole series of messages here. Because unless we bear fruit, we have nothing to show for the work done within us. For if there is a work done within you, or as he said in John 12... As a seed is planted inside of you, it's designed to grow. If you plant a grain of corn, what does it produce? It produces a whole ear of corn, doesn't it? Each grain is a reproduction of the original. That's what it's supposed to do with us. What he plants in us is to come forth as a reproduction of of the original. He must increase. I must decrease. There's got to be this change. And so he comes along with pruning shears. You're really doing good, aren't you? Whack. You're getting proud, aren't you? Whack. We've got to whack all these things off that come with success. If you had faith as a grain of mustard seed, look what you could do. Whoa, give me a bunch of that. Jesus could see them thinking, man, I'd be great if I could do all that. I could heal everybody. Jesus said, let me tell you something. When you have done all these things that are commanded you, you say this, we are still unprofitable servants because we have only done what God enabled us to do that he wanted done that would have never gotten done unless he had done it. 
So what am I? I am, as I heard years ago, I am a hose. Not the one you would buy, but I'm a hose. Not wrapped with all kinds of cords and high-tech stuff, just a plain old hose. What does a hose do? Well, if you have a spigot, it's only good when you plug it into a spigot if you turn it on. Who turns it on, God? Who turns it off, God? What good is a hose if the water's not in it? None. I mean, we're still unprofitable service. But look what I did, Lord. I did this, I did that, I did this. Whoa, I'm a minister. Woo! Everybody wants to follow me. He said, you not only got your reward, but I never knew you. Wow. See, I want you to be a humble man. I want you to realize that the source of strength and might, glory and goodness in your life is God. That's where it comes from. And that's who should get all the glory for it. All the praise for it. Jesus said, every branch in me that bears fruit, he prunes it. Not so it'll just have a time to bleed and cry. But if you prune it, it'll make more branches. And more branches is more fruit. And every time you prune it, you give it a chance to become more of what it was designed to be. We don't like to be pruned, I'm sure. We don't like all the things that happen to that. But the consequences of not bearing fruit in this life, the consequences of just sitting in a church and not bearing fruit are not good. What Jesus said, we'll close this. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he breaks it off and throws it into a pile. Or does he burn it? But what good is it? The tree that was not producing fruit. Remember the story? I can't stop telling you stories. The tree that wasn't doing any good in a good place, in a good area. And the owner of the trees, the land said, this tree here, y'all better listen to this. This tree here looks good. It looks like everybody else, but I don't see any fruit on it. Just cut the thing down. And somebody said, let me dig it and dung it. That doesn't sound good. Let me dig it and dung it and let me work on it. Give me a year with this tree. Can you imagine the labor? Somebody said, come on, tree, and digs around there and puts some stuff, whatever you do to a tree to make it grow and, and all that. And a year later, it's still dead. What do you do? Well, you cut it down. Why? It's a good tree. But it was a useless tree because it bore no fruit. A fig tree. Oh, we've got to close with this. A fig tree. I am hungry. There's a fig tree. Jesus walks up. Man, it's lush and green. It's the time of year of the figs. Man, it's got a lot of programs. Man, what an orchestra and a band. Beautiful place. Good people. I'm not against doing things decently in order, but I would like to see some fruit. There's nothing on this tree. I curse this tree. And walked off. Next day they came by or a couple of days later, they walked by and the leaves were going. Peter said, Lord, look, 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 look. This tree, this tree you curse is dying, it's dead. Remember what Jesus said, the first thing he said? Have faith in God. Because that's the way you bear fruit. You believe God. You live like it's true. You live like what you've heard is true. 
you got to decide. But if you decide it's true, live like it's true and let God bring it forth. Would you bow your head with me? Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray that you will bless us with understanding of your word that nobody here this morning would believe anything that was said because it was said, but would search the Scriptures and see if it's true. I pray this has been a time of conviction, enlightenment for somebody. For this day has come, and what we do on this day here is about done. It'll never be done again on this day. We ask that we would make the most of it and redeem the time that we have and give us light on this subject. I ask you to do it in Jesus' name. As we're about to partake in the communion this morning, I ask you to reflect in your own heart and mind about Jesus, His life on your behalf, and your life on His behalf. Amen.
Lord, I need to meet you there. To the river I am going, bringing sins I cannot bear. Come and cleanse me. Come forgive me, Lord, I need to meet you there. In these waters, healing mercy flows with freedom from despair. I am going to that river. Lord, I need to meet you there. Precious Jesus, I am ready to surrender every care. Take my hand now and lead me closer. Lord, I need Lord, I need to meet 